This is the Training Talks podcast with your host Richard Kelly of RK Fitness and Lawrence Davis of LXD Fitness. Yeah, I went to the sauna this morning. That's a weird thing to start with. Okay. Yeah, I know, it was weird. I can only book into the sauna, I'll give, I'll give you a little bit of the preamble here. I only booked into the sauna at 8.30 this morning. So, got up, didn't have anything this morning, had half a cup of coffee, realised I was running late, shot downstairs to the sauna, got in there, turns out it wasn't just me trying to get in there only one household was allowed in the sauna at any one time same for the steam room same for the jacuzzi how big is the sauna oh it can easily fit like six or seven people in there right. but obviously yeah right now what normally happens is because of this rule a lot of people seem to want to use all of the different bits so everyone sort of rotates around a little bit um, apart from your people who are doing swimming seriously which to be honest is not the pool for that it's too warm and it's too short so your goggles fog up within seconds, then you're swimming blind, and then before you know it, you've reached the end wall. What makes me laugh is that sounds like a good pull for me. Yeah, it probably would be for you. It's horrible for me. I just push off the wall and I'm at the other end, and I'm like, <laughs> okay, I can't swim in this. It's, it's impossible. So I do like weird physio type exercises for stability and stuff in there. I look like an idiot, but you know, it's what I'm doing. Anyway, I want you to go down and use the sauna. And so headed down, arrived five minutes late, someone was already in there. It's 45 minute time. Do you want to guess how long they were in the sauna for? 40 minutes. Basically, yeah, I got the last probably five minutes of it in the sauna. But, that, uh, that's when I got. But I'm so confused. How can they go in the sauna if you've booked the sauna? I haven't booked the sauna. I've booked to be in the, the wet area, oh. effectively. So it's whoever gets in there first. So she just was in there lying down for the entire time. And then I managed to get the last five minutes, which really annoyed somebody else who was swimming. Because obviously waiting. they wanted it too. But, you know shit happens doesn't it so um so i spent a lot of time in the steam room but the result of this is, is i've had a really weird morning now because i've done that this morning my head's gone a bit like crazy because i basically arrived dehydrated and then further dehydrated myself you know it's funny everyone talks about you know after training and stuff like that the benefits of sauna and the steam room but all i can think about is the dehydration and for me i just can't i'm always on the edge of just about being dehydrated and then I'm going to go into a sauna and be even more dehydrated Yeah. and then the fascia <laughs> even more no, no, no way see I, want, I wanted to use the sauna because I wanted to have like a proper stretch session before this morning so the idea was I go to the sauna get literally get down there spend 15 minutes in there to get warm and, and get like a little bit of a sweat on and then come back upstairs to my house and then stretch and then go and have like a cold shower and the rest of it but obviously that plan went out the window. Terribly out the window. So I spent a lot of time in the steam room, which I'm not really sure what the benefit of, apart from the fact that I can't breathe, <laughs> and a lot of time in the jacuzzi to try and get some sort of muscle relaxation going on. You weren't going to get that. No, so it didn't, it didn't really work out the plan. But that was my morning. That's hilarious. Um, my morning was not as dehydrating as yours. Yeah. Uh, just been training. I started my strength programme. It's really? so weird when you go back to strength and you haven't done it for a while. Like little things like I was doing deadlifts, hand placement on the bar. I was using a trap bar. So you know if your hands aren't perfectly in the middle, oh, it's yeah. going to tilt. And on top of that, even if it is perfectly in the middle, because it's been so long since I've done it, you forget how much. Like, you know, you might squeeze a bit more of your first two fingers and the index finger rather than the little finger and the bar starts to tilt anyway. So it was, it was a very interesting session. It was good. And I didn't want to push myself too much, but the hardest thing was just keeping my hands on a bar and keeping the bar level. So 
with your strength training uh, program that you've, you've got, how many days are you doing? So I'm doing a three-day split, but only two days of strength training. Okay, so what's the third day? GVT. You've kept it in there? Love a bit of GVT. So how does that work then together? Because surely the strength work is going to hammer you and then you're trying to do GVT at the end of it. No, so what? the way I've figured it out is because I have basketball on a Sunday night. I know how much that is going to exhaust me. Yeah. So the plan was to Monday do upper body GVT because in my upper body would be the one thing which would still have a certain level of you know energy compared to my legs. My legs are going to be dead until I get used to it again. Right. So do upper body GVT on Monday, Wednesday do strength, okay, full body, Friday do strength, full body, then rest until Sunday and then go again. So I'm always intrigued by this because when I say full body and when other people say full body, I'm not sure we're always talking about the same thing. So for me, I'm covering all the major muscles, but I'm doing different movements. So that is, is your Wednesday and Friday the same workout effectively? Is it covering cell squats, deadlifts, bench press? Rose, is that all in there? And then again, the same on Friday? Yes. Okay, wow. So that's quite an intensive session. Then. Well, it's kind of... So Wednesday's deadlifts and RDLs, they're the two big ones. You're doing both together? Yes. But no, A1, let's say first... One of the first two exercises, deadlifts. Second set or a second bracket is RDLs. So for trainers out there, it would be like A1, deadlifts, B1, RDLs. Have you done this yet today? Because today's Wednesday for the Yeah, lessons. I've done it. I've done the first session today. Do you still have hamstrings? My <laughs> The funny thing is, my hamstrings are never the problem. <laughs> They're not the problem. The thing that gets to the, becomes a problem is the grip. Yeah. Because you're going from something something which demands the highest level of grip to make sure you lift up the bar. Then you go to an RDL which, which needs a high level of grip, but it's not so much about that instant strength. It's the duration. Yeah. Um, at the upper end of strength so I'm doing 6 to 8 reps and in there like after you get to number 5 you really feel your grip starting to go yeah 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 because you um... but then that's the point I'm trying to I want my deadlift to get stronger but at the same time I don't want to be a person or I don't want to get into the, that kind of false economy where you think you're stronger than you are because your weakest part is your forearms and your forearms are still pansies compared to the rest of your body you know, you get that quite a lot. Yeah, it was yeah. like, oh, yeah, let's just use wraps. You can use wraps, but then you, you leave your, your forearm so far behind everything else, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I don't see the point of that. I, I, I would get it if, if you were doing a competition and they allowed wraps, right? Let's say you're a powerlifter. I get why you might train with it. If you're a bodybuilder, I also get it because there could be a point where you need to work the back to get the right level of stimulus and therefore for, you know, shaping that you need to fo- focus on it. But for every normal person and anyone else... I always think they're completely pointless because you're just you end up ego lifting and you go, well, I can do this with wraps. I can do this if we do. I mean, you might as well say, well, my quarter squat is this. <laughs> what makes me laugh is some of my clients say to me, yeah, look, you know, I could do it with with wraps. And I look at them and say, but that means you can't really do it then, can you? Yeah. <laughs> and you just hear silence because it's true because you can't really do it. So hang on, what, what, is, your, what is your end goal for this uh, program? Is it... Are you, are you, have you got targeted kind of numbers you're aiming at or is it just overall strength or is it is it a pre part of this to go into your power phase well to answer your questions because there wasn't one question yeah yes to literally everything it's I'm trying to get more strength before I go to power 
Yeah. I've already done the last periodization was hypertrophy. Okay. So it's a for me it's a, a natural progression to go into strength to because now I've got more size. How can I apply that more size into strength before going to power for the speed application of the strength? Yeah, I'm with you. And then you're gonna cycle out the other end with Let's see how the power goes. Yeah. Because if the power goes doesn't go too well, then I might go back into strength. Right. Then go back into power. It's panning out around the basketball season. If I actually get enough sleep in the week and I can play, <laughs> then I might want to make sure I go back into hypertrophy and then come back into power and then maybe do strength. I haven't figured out how to play the last last month or two before the season, but until I know my numbers in terms of like my max strengths, I can't really do that. Yeah, and I don't think you ever know that until you get closer to the point because like I was I was thinking, okay, so I'm doing hypertrophy this month. Then next month I wanna do I wanna I wanna do a phase of at least two to three weeks of just complexes and kettlebells. And then I was thinking the other thing I haven't played around with, which I sort of think I should do in the summer sort of that style of animal flow and body weight stuff like pull-ups not exclusively but have it in there as like a day or two see the thing is thing is you could add that in as a a rest day workout or a deload yeah, day workout right so so i was thinking i was going to put that in and then maybe put some like like a shorter strength phase focusing in on say like i'm trying to rebuild the squat so maybe by that point if things are going well i have a focus where i have two days of literally squatting or squatting variations in there with that because that's going to mean that I can then focus purely on that and build that up and then the rest of it is all body weight work you know pull-ups push-ups that kind of thing I can really build the pull-ups up get the weighted belt out again get the power up on that and then I can you know do the rest of it as sort of animal movements animal flow stuff as a sort of pseudo mobility style thing that might be where I end up going and then I might go back into conventional strength at the end of that but it's too far away to, to think about because that's going to be sort of August, September, and I need to get through this bit first. Well, you know, if you're if you're trying to truly plan it, you actually can't think that way. That is too far away. Because if you if you're if someone if you're training someone for the Olympics, you'd actually have to plan backwards. Yeah, I mean, even though it, even though it could change, you'd have to plan set out ahead of time. Yeah, but and then yeah, change for, around for, months. For someone for the Olympics, you're, you've got a four year cycle to to deal with. Yep. And I mean, in terms of planning stuff, that's a, that's a different level of planning, though, because that's the UK SCA style. Yeah, because that's also for you. you have to work out how you're going to peak each each year as well, and how much you peak, and when you're peaking because of competitions and the qualifying yeah. and stuff like that. It, I love that stuff, but it's 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 incredible stuff to do. How's your uh, garden going? Oh, amazing. Really? But I haven't been out there in a couple of days. I need to go out to check on the onions. We harvested the garlic. I think we've got like 20 to 25 garlics. Wow. That's cool. So for the listeners out there that don't know, for years my family has been trying to get me to do gardening and I've said, no, I'm not going to become a farmer. <laughs> but more and more, as you know, you look at our diets, what, you know, what they put into food, what the food looks like when it gets to you and what they've done to preserve it, to keep it, to get to you. And then like, you know, you can get some fresh fruit and in two days it's gone off. If you backtrack from your house all the way back to when it was first picked, what's the time period of that? You're getting a lot of fruit out of season 
because they've done things to alter the fruit to allow it to grow all year round when it shouldn't be like that there's a season for everything and you shouldn't get those type of things out of season well also you've got pesticides that's it that's another big one so these are the type of things that you know if I can in somewhere I want to alleviate I want, I've looked at the things I eat the most and I'm like if I can you know harvest them myself it makes it a lot easier yeah I mean I think as well it's really good to do it because it, you get to realise how much effort it takes to grow you know a tomato or a garlic that's it so we've got I think we've got four tomato plants which are just starting to blossom I've got a pear tree and I don't know whether it's going to do anything this year but it's it's, it's going well um, we've got like a hundred and something onions to harvest that's going to be fun what do you do with the excess though? oh so think about it so um, the garlic I think we're going to chop it up and then freeze it yeah okay Yeah. same thing with the onions chop them up and freeze them that's a good idea before I would go to the shop and buy frozen onions Diced yeah. frozen onions yeah. So you can just put it in You just got to spend a day doing it all That's it There's um, I watched this a, a YouTube thing of this uh, Italian family Who took all these They all grew tomatoes Took all the tomatoes uh, To one person's house Big pot Or big couple of pots Put some fires on Basically turned it all into tomato sauce Right And then just like took it all Everyone had like jars and jars of it Took it home Jars and jars of tomato sauce for the year Makes sense yeah, as a base, it makes it makes total sense because you can use it as a base for loads of stuff. Honestly, now between like this year and next year, I won't need to buy another onion. I won't need to buy any more garlic if I get it right. Um, tomatoes, I don't know how much harvest I'm going to get from the tomatoes, but like there's by the end of next year, there's a lot of things I won't need to buy from a store again. funny topic that always comes up with me Richard is overtraining oh yeah or you know there's two terms for it you've got overtraining and overreaching right there's a massive difference between the two however in the gym industry we kind of misuse both of them yeah we use it to mean the same thing listeners out there will go through everything in terms of the differences between the two but there's a lot of myths that we need to start talking about and you know kind of debunk what is true and what really isn't true from a gym floor setting it's so easy to end up in either having overtrained or or overreached in, in your training because of the way people train these days. Everyone focuses too much on intensity and they see it as the sign of progress. Or they end up uh, working with a trainer who's so desperate to showcase how good they are, they end up thrashing their client in every single session. So and a good example of this, you know GVT, German volume, volume training. training. Yeah. And you know you've got modified GVT. So hold on, for the listeners, German volume training, if you don't know, is 10 sets of 10 of two movements that are uh, opposite, so like a push and pull, so a bench press or a row. But it has to be compound movement, and on top of that, the key thing about it is, isn't even so much the 10 sets of 10, it's the time under tension. Yeah. It's six seconds per rep. Two seconds concentric, four seconds eccentric. So a total of 60 seconds per set. So for a long time, you know, in the literature, they spoke about, you know, German volume training and its benefits in terms of building size. However, a lot of the research now is switched towards the fact that the concept makes sense, but the volume actually doesn't give you much more back. Really? So is 10 sets of 10 too much? 
Well, I mean, theoretically, you probably don't need 10 sets of 10 to stimulate the response you need. For most newbies, you probably don't even need three sets to kind of get that response because if you've never, like, if you've never done any time of detention work, a six-second rep is hard, right? 60 seconds of, of work followed by uh, a second exercise of 60 seconds. That's two minutes. And if you even if you give rest as, as equal, so another two-minute break, your recovery is not going to be there. Theoretically, if you did that for, say, a phase of training, say, three, four weeks, let's say, it's so easy to end up being overtrained. So the latest thing is that for the listeners out there, instead of doing 10 sets of 10, you actually get the same or if not more significant results for doing five sets of 10. Really? Okay. Interesting. Um, I mean, this makes this makes sense in a lot of ways. I guess we should try and define what overtraining and overreaching actually are. Yeah. And start using the correct terms. That's the hardest bit. So most people label anything where you have um, like diminishing returns or your performance isn't as good as it should be as overtraining. However, overtraining could be classified more as a chronic thing and a syndrome because you can't really say someone's overtraining unless they're consistently underperforming for, let's say, at least a month or so or two months. And for some people, it's even years. So in order for them to get back to where they were, they need to have literally a, a full sabbatical from training. So, so the only real way to solve overtraining... Would train. be to have a complete break. Yep, would be to not train. But that's the thing. In a gym setting, we don't really talk about that. No, I mean, also in a gym setting, most people never really hit that point because because yep, they never push themselves to that level or or do enough training to ever hit that. That's it. Now, overreaching, which is what I feel we start need to start using in the industry, is totally different. So, one thing we forgot, listeners, is the key thing about training and trying to get results is everything comes back to super compensation. Super compensation is what we always strive for as trainers, as athletes. It's where you get better, but it's in a kind of methodical process. So to take you through the process, because, you know, it's, it's essential, you've got the stage of training where as you train, you start to push the body into fatigue. So you go below your normal level of training because you're causing damage to the body. And then what you want is you want to get to the point where you push yourself but you don't push yourself too far and then you take your brakes off the gas or take your foot off the gas. When you take your foot off the gas, your body comes back up, peaks back up into super compensation. So let, let's, let's, use a, let's use an example of this. So let's say you've got an individual who can bench 60 kilos for 10 reps. And in the first set, they can do 60. In the second set, they can do 60. And then in the third set, they can really do... Um, either 60 for, for 8 or 55 for 10 or something because of because of that fatigue super compensation is, is whereby they would progress to the point that they could do 3 sets of 60 yes so what you'd have to do is you'd have to do let's say 10 sessions of where you're pushing them to do that weight or more in terms of reps yeah so like a drop set yeah you'd do what they normally could do at 60 so drop sets is where you have a number, number of different weights and you're pushing yourself through like the different modalities. You're burning out every single ca- kind of energy source that the muscle has to get adaptations, which is a super compensation. Yeah. So you'd have to push them through that and then once you stopped and you had, a like, let's say, a week break, you'd come back and the super compensation would mean that they'd be able to consistently do yeah. the 60 kg. That super compensation is part of that process of overreaching. 
Yes. It's, it's, it's almost like the end goal of overreaching. Because the key difference between overreaching and overtraining is that to recover from overreaching takes about two weeks. Right. So, in, in theory, it's, it's, it's the recovery process that becomes valuable in that process. That's it. So that's why, you know, the, the, term, the term which hopefully a lot of listeners know, but even if you don't know, is deloading came about. Right. Because when you do a program, you do a program for eight weeks, trying to cause as much fatigue as possible. But knowing at the end of the eight weeks, you'd have a deload period where you would still work the body, but the stimulus on the body wouldn't be enough to cause you to further overtrain and would give your body a chance to perk back up above the normal line or your old maxes. Uh, a lot of the kind of the new data now is showing that around 70% of max is is probably optimal for, for where you want to train at generally. So regardless of what you're doing. So let's say, for example, your one rep max on, on a squat is 140 kilos. You'd be looking at doing um, 70% of that, which is around at about 100-ish kilos or so, maybe 90 or so. And so you'd be working at that range because that level still has a stimulus effect to, to boost you up and equally if, if if you're working your 10 reps say and that's that's 100 then you'd be working at 70 because it still has that benefit and i think w- the reason why i think this comes into play is because when you're calculating in your overreaching and when you're deliberately trying to overload that system and stimulate fatigue because you've added in deloads as afterwards as a result because you need them in there to ensure that you remain at peak performance the 70% sort of compensates you there because it's the frequency of contact. So I would I would assume that for most athletes, they're, they're running predominantly at 70% with occasional periods where they do deliberate overreach work. Depends. You've got different trains of thought. So you've got like um, Olympic lifting types of training where they stay at 80% the whole time. Right. So they say above that norm. Or you've got undulating programs whereby it's... And this is that up and down curves or hills where whereby you do a 70 week, then you go up to an 80 week. Yeah. Then you might even peak up to a 90. Then you come back down. Then let's say an eight week block, you're going to have that period where you know that their body is in the prime position to work at that higher range. So you want to utilize that before the super compensation comes in. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you because that ultimately then means that you... Um get the net result yeah and you get the maximum out of it so for a lot of the people who train and the trainers you're going to have those days where your client feels amazing yeah now in some respect if you know the long term plan it may be good to stay at 70% for, but honestly there's going to be those days where you think okay I'm going to push this person on this day because I know they're in in that elite status of their body they're not going to get better than this they feel they had enough sleep. You know, all the factors yeah, that yeah. could be there aren't there. So they're like, okay, I'll push you. I'll push you to 90% on certain exercises. Even even higher. And then bring you back down. But, you know, the general rule will always be the heavier the weight, the, the less reps. Because we're, we're trying to follow that pattern where, you know, 10 reps, 10 to 12 is hypertrophy. Then you've got like 6 to 8, which they call like functional strength. And you got below that, which is strength, which is like six and below would be like, yes, normal strength. And then you've got above that, which would be 12 plus would be endurance. One, one of the interesting things that, that sort of comes to mind here is is how much uh, overuse 
would be of benefit to someone who's elite would you tend to say that someone who's let's say newer to the gym to say they've got a training age of under two would would not benefit so much from over overreaching because they've got less technique and less um resilience in their cns system so their central nervous system someone with a young training age the problem isn't getting them to overreach it's just the fact that there's so many technical things they need to learn yeah so with a newbie per se you know someone with um two years training age and less you can get them to overreach but a lot of that time is they're still trying to understand the movements, understand yeah. the feeling with each movement and understanding how their body changes when you get to the higher weights and the lower reps. Yeah, and I suppose as well, one of the issues with having a young training age is, is just... So we, we've both experienced it. Is It's when when you're working with a bar and that weight is less than your weight, you can get away with sort of muscling the movement. Yes. As soon as that weight goes above your weight, you need to have the right technique. It's it, you know, using the deadlift. It's totally different doing a deadlift where that weight is above your weight, because at that point, if you don't have the right positioning, you will not be able to do it without hurting yourself. And again, once you go to the point where that weight is one and a half times your weight, it's different again, and then twice, and then all of these things make a difference, and you're not. Unless, unless you're some sort of freak of nature, you're really unlikely to have got to that point within that two-year window. So when you're looking at overreaching and deliberately pushing the body beyond uh, its, its capability that it can handle, it's very easy to make um, errors and then create an injury yeah. or a problem. But funny enough, with someone, someone with a young training age, it doesn't matter what they do, you're always going to overreach. <laughs> Think about it. You're always going to get that super compensation because you're giving them brand new stimulus to the body. How much do you think something like, say, time and attention can offset something like um, CNS fatigue issues? See, I haven't looked into too much research into this, but I don't think it could. I feel like it would still have a certain effect on the body in terms of the CNS, but not as much, but I don't think it's like a clear divide between you know using that instead of using something else to relax the CNS unless you know something different when you go back into into the past when you look at how people trained uh, when gyms first became popular in sort of the 70s and 80s there was a huge um, amount of focus put onto time and attention which is why you you read about these sort of um, protocols of two seconds up four seconds down or pauses and, and all the rest of it because that came from that period of time and I tend to think that the more explosive actions are more difficult to do because they rely on really connected movement through the CNS. Yes, but you've got to remember, most things that people do in the gym aren't explosive, they're just ballistic. They're not, but they're inadvertently try and move it as quick as possible. Yeah, but you can't... Exercise. But then it's tough to say that that would have a significant effect on the CNS like a power exercise. Because it's not really... It's... It's, it's not, but as we've just said, for, for newbies, everything overreaches. So is, yeah, is this a methodology to stop that occurring? Because what you don't want to do, and for the listeners, is create too much adaptation in one go because then you can't direct that adaptation in the way you want it to. You, yeah, but can you really control that? You can't you, really control that. If you Well, if you control the speed of the the movement... But controlling the speed of movement will only change the stimulus on the body. Won't change the amount of adaptations. Because if you're slowing it down, you've got more time and attention. So you move into a realm where 
your the muscles gonna get more fatigued and then like it'll go back into like GVT in a, in a way because it will be mm. causing more damage to the muscle because you've got more time of doing what of doing that actual exercise. It's a, it's a good thing to look at. I think listeners, we should have a podcast just on CNS. That'll be hilarious. I like it. Yeah, we can do that for definite. What are the signs of overreaching outside of the gym? There's so many things you could look at. I would say, it's, in my opinion and from my experience, it's a very individual thing. So for my clients, you've got, in terms of females, you've got frequency and regularity of menstrual cycle. Right. Not many people look at that. That is a big factor. If someone's yeah. frequent, if someone's there, every, if someone's has a 28-day cycle and it keeps re- uh, repeating and then all of a sudden they miss a month, then you're like, you got to start thinking, okay, why? It may not be, it may not have anything to do with the gym because, you know, there's a lot of data which talks about, um, there's a term, I can't remember the term, but there's an actual classification for someone who misses their menstrual cycle for two or more months. Anything less than that and it's not categorised as anything, it's just random. Right. Which I still is weird to me I think there should still be a category for that and we're, if there is please listeners send us a message and let us know we're, we're two men which probably shouldn't we, we you know this is not really our area in this in this sense because it doesn't happen to us it so. doesn't happen to us but I'm deep in I'm, I'm deep in the game <laughs> real deep in the game I've got too many female clients to not be deep in the game but um, I would say that extreme levels of muscle soreness another one is um, lack of sleep well I was going to say there's the, the, one, one of the overriding things here is a lot of the issues are effectively the same as the issues you get for stress. Yeah. So one of the things I tend to do with anyone when I'm working with them is try and assess their stress level as a base point. So if they're in a high stress job where um, that you know it causes them lack of sleep, it causes them um, poor sleep, or means that they have a poor diet because they don't really have time to to do the nutrition properly, these things are going to have a factor on top of uh, their training. So when I'm training them. I tend to try and be aware of this as a, as a start point because someone who's in a high stress job like that is going to have sleep issues already. So I need that base point to understand whether I've actually affected that. See, that's a tough thing because they may have someone in like your situation, their, their sleep may get worse because of the stress of work, yeah. not because of stress of training, even though you've upped the amount of stress you're putting on the body through training. Yeah. So honestly, it's just yeah, a person to person. I think the thing that really indicates that really works well for me is the recovery. Yeah, is it is that what things have they got in prehab and recovery? What are they putting in pro in place to help with that? Because the fatigue in and out of the gym, we can only control so much, but we can definitely control and structure what they do to make that feel better, regardless of the situation. Absolutely, and then it's the same. It's the same thing as. Um... This is where understanding muscle soreness comes in because if you're working with somebody and you've worked with them for quite a while, you can sort of assess how long it takes them to recover from a session and how long it should take. And if it's taking longer and they're not reporting signs of um, any additional stress or or work-related issues, then that does strongly point to the fact that you've, you've entered into a phase of overreaching. People try and find ways to relax, right? And... You know, the typical things that they, they, they often go and do is spend time with friends and family, you know, go go and have a nice meal or 
eat comfort foods, drink alcohol, you know, people smoke cigarettes as well, if they smoke, that kind of thing, some people take drugs. These are your typical de-stressors. But a lot of those things actually add stress in, or can do. Well, I know from my experience and a lot of my clients' experience, alcohol is more of a stress than a de-stressor. It certainly does have a stressing effect. it affects so many people's sleep. Yeah, and it, it, it also has an effect on the body when you have it, because let's not forget, it is actually a poison. And it's the same It's the same with drugs, because you know we all know people who've, who've taken drugs, and in the moment they might feel more relaxed, but the after effect of that is never good. Yep. Spending time with friends and family, I always find is an interesting one, because that can be very relaxing, but it can also be incredibly stressful. I mean, everyone's got family members who they don't necessarily get on with. If you go to a family gathering, it's not necessarily always the most relaxing time in the world. So I think when people are talking about trying to de-stress, they need to be very mindful of what they're doing and, and, and how they're actually going to go about that process. And if it is actually something which de-stresses the body. So some of the things that you know we use personally and get our clients to use meditation that's yeah. a good one a lot of my clients do use meditation at places or companies at headspace stuff like that yeah um it sounds funny but active recovery uh so you better define active recovery for listeners so it's it's a form of still working out but you're working out at such a low level it's almost like it's just keeping your body ticking over it's not going to cause any damage to any of your major systems it's not going to be a big stress on the body so by uh, active recovery, you mean stuff like, say, deload weeks or walking and stuff like that? Deload weeks would be for someone who's actively in the gym four, times, four or five times a week. Yeah. Yeah, you do a deload in that yeah. sense. Uh, I, I tend to find as well that cold therapy has quite a good benefit. Yes, but that's such a personal thing. Contrast training, as they call it, or contrast therapy. I can handle contrast therapy up to my midsection. <laughs> I can't take cold water above my midsection. It just doesn't work. I I I quite like um, cold therapy. I don't know why, but it's it's one of those things. It's just personal preference. Yeah. What can you actually handle? Like I know in a lot of sports they do um, ice baths after uh, after a game. Yeah. If it was me, I would be the one person who's not going. <laughs> I think I think these days with a lot of teams as well, you can't not do it. They're that. Uh, big advocates of it so what it does for me is it helps me uh, in my sleep process so it's the next stage for me but it's the pre-stage for me before I get ready for bed that's the worst thing I could ever think about before bed <laughs> that's a lot I, I can understand in the summer how it makes sense for me but yeah hot and cold therapy just after training in and out um, I think last time I checked the literature on this it was like <laughs> there's some studies they do and when they work out the ratios of each, it's never simple. It's never like a three to one. It's like some off numbers. So the, I had to break it down for one of my clients to say, okay, around 20 seconds in the cold, a minute and a half in, in the hot. So, you know, what's, what's interesting is, is uh, when you watch certain individuals use hot and cold therapy post-training, uh, this is a side point, but um, what, they've, what they tend to find is that uh, hot work, like sauna work, is great for muscle growth because that inflammation gets stirred up afterwards mm -hmm. and that sends a signal to, to build muscle and, and it thicken tendon and move blood. 
obviously we've missed the biggest thing out which is actually sleep sleep is probably the biggest thing that can help you with uh overreaching it's funny you say that it is the biggest thing but in my opinion it's the hardest to control well this is this is where i think and especially modern in modern times now it's so hard to do because we've got so many sources of uh blue light like electronics yeah we've got so many um distractions in terms of noises around the house you've got distractions in terms of like the fact that we're connected 24 7 now even 20 years ago once you left the office from work once you'd finished for the day that was it no one could contact you you were done right now you can be asleep three o'clock in the morning someone can call you wake you up and ask you a question about work so that's why uh they call it sleep hygiene sleep hygiene is so important so that's creating an environment whereby you've put yourself in the best position for sleep so that's turning off lights 30 minutes before you go to bed that's putting away electronics 30 minutes before you go to bed if you are still up and around in that 30 minute period you'd you'd go by candlelight ideally or you know candlelight yeah i've done it that's old school i mean you could use red lights if you've got red lights but it's it's, it's about minimizing those light sources it's about uh, preparing the body for that sleep state ultimately and that then leads you into a better sleep anyone who's listening who has children of a young age your sleep doesn't exist right now. If you get a good night, you're going to pay for it for three or four nights. <laughs> and if you're lucky enough to have a child which sleeps through the night, then you're in like the rare group, like, you know, like the five percentile. Yeah. So with that in, in mind, when you're tailoring a training program to get a person to overreach, day to day, they're going to be totally different because of their sleep. Absolutely. Ultimately, these life factors are what pays into how hard you can train someone and how challenging it is to avoid overreaching unless you're deliberately aiming to get into it. And this is why for elite athletes, so much work is done in and around the non-training aspects because they're trying to make that non-training aspect as controlled and as uh, positive as possible. And stress-free. Yeah, which is why everyone found it hilarious when the uh, GB team took all the mattresses for every single athlete to Brazil and, and shipped them all out there. But to me and you, that makes total sense. Yeah. The most important thing about a night's sleep is how good your mattress is. Yeah. And if you go to a hotel with a terrible mattress and a terrible pillow, you're going to get neck ache. Yeah, it's just it's extra factors that you didn't really want to have to worry about. Yeah, and that's, that's why they perform so well, because every other factor, all of the small details was taken care of. And... Whilst that's not possible for for you you or I to do as laymen, I mean we could theoretically buy perfect mattresses. A ticket everywhere, <laughs> right? It's it's not practical. So it becomes it becomes a balancing thing, and what you're doing in all of your training is trying to adapt and move forward as best you can without any issues holding you back. One of my biggest recommendations to help with overreach and overtraining, even though it's really hard to get into overtraining, is to categorize and log everything. Log your yep. performance in relation to your sleep. Um, for most of my clients, I have menstrual cycle trackers, which also go along with the other trackers. And then after a while, you start to see a pattern. You'll start to see or notice in yourself, when you've got a certain amount of sleep and you're in a certain part of your menstrual cycle, you're strongest. And the numbers will prove it every single time. And then from there, then you can manipulate how you get into overreaching by using the data that you've collected. Because... Ultimately, no one knows you but you. So for your non-elite athlete, your non-elite person, your non-trainer, you've got to take into account 
your life um, and the stresses on it, your quality of sleep, quality of nutrition, and uh, the all, all of those kind of factors uh, when it comes to overreaching. So, uh, as as Lawrence has said, overreaching is something that does happen to you when when you're when you're new into training, whether you like it or not. If you're uh, in a high stress job, you might have to accept the fact that your training progress is going to be slower because if you push too hard on that you're more likely to cause issues down the line and affect your affect your progress it's all about balance thanks for listening and we'll be back next week